Eating healthy, living healthy, being healthy. This is the Holistic Keto Goddess Podcast. A podcast focused on holistic wellness and teaching you about incorporating the keto diet and lifestyle changes to achieve an energetic balance. Teaching you how to live now so you don't struggle to live later. And now, your host, Jessica Ankaya. Welcome, Jessica here. I have Andrew Kutnick on today, and he is an expert in the keto world. I'm so glad that he's here today. We're going to talk to him, and I'm going to ask him some questions. And he's going to kind of give us the lowdown on how to do the keto diet if you're a type 1 diabetic. So I'm super excited about that. Sometimes in the keto world, there's been a stigma about doing the keto diet if you have type 1 diabetes. So we're going to kind of clear a little bit of that up today. So anyways, hey, Andrew, how's it going? Hey, Jessica, I am doing awesome. Honored to be here today and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. yeah, glad you're here. All right, so let's get started. So what inspired you to do the keto diet in the first place? And I'm sure you've gotten some resistance being a type 1 diabetic and doing the keto diet. Well, yeah. So, you know, what started me on this journey, that's actually a little bit of a windy road story. And I'll try to give you the encapsulate story. And if there's any interest in little pieces of that, we can go into it. But sure. I was diagnosed about 14 years ago now, when I was actually 16 going on 17, I'm now 31 years old. So, oh, you know, wow. give or take 14 years. And uh, we were actually on a family trip to Washington, DC. In fact, we were at Washington, DC. And right before we got on the plane, I actually developed some symptoms of like uh, GI irritation and just an upset stomach. And so of course, Gatorade is a solution for that. You know, sugary sodas and carbonation should help with that, right? So that's what I did. Right. And uh, consumed that, went on the plane and actually wasn't as bad when I got into the plane as compared to when I was sitting outside. But then the next few days, I felt the most lethargic I've ever felt. And I had been exercising at this point. I had just gone through a whole life transformation of exercising, getting heavy into the lifestyle and nutrition. And uh, here I am feeling like I can barely walk for 30 minutes without like the yeah. worst exhaustion I've had in my life. To kind of jump to the end of that, I ended up in the hospital. My blood sugar was 563, I think was the number. Uh, normal is wow. 80 to 120. And so we were, I was well above that. Some yeah. diabetics might find out they're diagnosed in the 200. Some might be up to a thousand. I've heard all ranges of that. Uh, and I was diagnosed and I was told on the spot, okay, you're going to have to take insulin injections and, you know, things like these syringes on a regular basis. And uh, I was like, okay, whatever, you know, can I get out of here? You know, I want to go home. And I didn't think much of it until I left. This was, I was in the ICU for a week and I got out of the ICU and was in the general hospital stay for another week. And, uh, then I uh, left. And when I left is when the depression like truly hit me. I, you know, I realized I had to pull a syringe out check my blood sugar and do a whole bunch of mathematical estimations and then assumptions on what dose I should be taking at every single meal of every single day. And that was quite an overwhelming feeling initially when that happened. And it definitely hit me pretty hard and I was most definitely depressed uh, at that stage. And truly the thing that transformed my mindset at that was something I've learned honestly was pretty ubiquitous throughout life which is the, the sooner and quicker you adapt to whatever life challenges are thrown your way, the better off you're going to be. And luckily that took about two weeks for me with type 1 diabetes. I had uh, grown a huge level of love for the bodybuilding world. Uh, the idea of changing your physique through hard work of exercise and changing your nutritional habits. And so I, I thought, well, you know, there's got to be something to this. And, and to be quite honest with you, I had known that bodybuilders 
tried to abuse and use insulin on a regular basis. So I'm like, well, maybe there's some advantage for me here. Um, and so I tried to reframe it in my head as some type of positive. Uh, and truly what ended up happening is from then on forward, I had an incredible doctor. Uh, so that was kind of my story from how I initially got diagnosed to the onset of what my reality was to kind of realizing there might be something true that, to this that I could take to my advantage and, and make a, a turn a true loss into a win. Um, and I had an amazing doctor when I was first diagnosed, an incredible, incredible man who called my family every morning uh, to check my blood sugar, make adaptations. And we did that for about four months, got me relatively stable through the honeymoon period. And about a year out, I was still very much in love with the workout and lifestyle of, of bodybuilding. And I had heard this low carbohydrate diet and ketone, ketogenic diet could hypothetically preserve muscle mass and then also uh, help you lose weight. And what year was that? Okay, yeah, I have to do some math in my head here. Let's see. It, this had to have been 13 or 12 or 13 years ago. Yeah. Atkins is when Atkins was still kind of. That was another thing. So that had taken, uh, that actually had uh, really started hitting a peak in popularity before my diagnosis about two to three years prior. And we're talking here mm -hmm. about 2010, or no, what is it? 2021 now. So we're talking 2008, 2007, somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, either way. So I started to think, you know, maybe there's something to this. And I was honestly totally ignorant that the, the, the true irony of this is I ended up studying that exact thing in my graduate school studies, which is what is the impact of ketones on muscle mass retention in atrophy scenarios. Uh, and when you, you know, cut weight or lose weight, uh, that is a kind of an analogous situation to that. So ironically, my life came full circle uh, to that point. But my, my mindset when I went into that was totally ignorant. I had no idea how this would really work. I just was full of dreams and beliefs or what all, you know, placebos, so to speak. And um, I, but what was amazing is I went on this journey and I cut, I lowered my carbohydrates to about 50 grams or less per day. And that was just, you know, green leafy vegetables, broccoli, spinach, and the like. Is that uh, up my fat intake. Is that, that? Net, is that net carbs or is that total carbs? Uh, so I would say that was more of a net carb at that stage, um, okay. because I it truly, what I was just doing is it's having about four to five meals per day and just cutting the amount of vegetables and carbs to those specific types and keeping them at about a cup in volume. So, it, you know, depending on what type I was using, you know, that might've varied a little bit, but generally speaking, that's not really what the goal was. The goal was to just keep my blood sugar. Not, at that time, it wasn't about blood sugar regulation. It was just about facilitating this low carbohydrate ketogenic state, which I thought I was entering, which I didn't know because I had no objective biomarkers for that, like mm -hmm. blood ketones or, or something along that line. But at that time, I thought I was doing it, right. So I didn't have as much of this like uh, objective analysis that we now all have available to us if we want it um, to actually know where we are uh, objectively. And sure. but what was amazing is about three months after I went on that journey, Throughout that three month period, I was finding that I did two major things. Okay, I cut my carbohydrates and transformed the type of carbohydrates. So I cut it to around 50 grams or less per day of green leafy vegetables. And then I kept my protein the exact same. And then I just kept my fat higher. So kind of replaced the carbohydrate I had per calorie and exchanged it for fat. And that kept me uh, pretty, actually what ironically happens, my performance actually improved quite a bit. I think I was a little deficient in the amount of fat I was having originally. I felt great and I looked better and I was losing a little bit of weight. And I was like, well, this is gold. Like this is magic uh, yeah. <laughs> for me. And that's all I care about, right? Is how do I look, right. you know? Right. But what was amazing is throughout that period of time, 
is during that three months, I would very rarely ever test outside of the 70 to 120 range. And I was like, I, I feel better on a, on a regular basis. And I show up to my doctor three months later and sitting there with my lab results. And he's like, you know, Andrew, what are you doing? And I was like, you know, what do you mean? He's like, well, I, I don't know if I've ever seen an HbA1c like this before. It's 5.6. Um, what, what are you doing? And he's like, this is a non-diabetic HbA1c. And I said, well, here's all the things I'm doing, you know? And then I outlined, you know, I changed my insulin to match the food I was consuming and I did all these nuanced things. And then throughout the next two to three years, I would, I got invited to speak at the College of Medicine. He would get his interns to, to talk with me. And uh, it was an interesting journey, but that really lit a, a fire under me to think there's something special here. You know, I use nutrition and exercise, which is something that was always appreciated to be a very powerful tool in the journey of managing, you know, any, or I thought in managing your health and wellness, but now I have a disease. Now I have a diagnosis and this nutritional approach utterly transformed the way I felt on a regular basis, not only from a objective physical performance perspective, my physique, but just honestly, more important than any that, I felt better. So ever since then, since that point to now, for the vast majority of my time on that, I've been on this approach and I've switched on and off this approach a few times. I've tried flexible dieting. I've tried you know, uh, you know, all sorts of things, carbohydrate counting. Um, I mean, like all the like fatty approaches. I tried probably some iteration of that um, and played with macronutrients. I used to count every gram of everything for years on end. Um, and I always came back to this approach because I would, I would usually those were try and improve my performance. Okay, if you have this and you do this around your workout, it'll improve your performance. And um, what I found is that fundamentally as a type one diabetic, all of that really didn't matter if I didn't feel good on a regular basis and I didn't have my mental cognition intact and I wasn't able to perform well. And that really came down to blood sugars on a regular basis. That was sure. the most important thing for me feeling good uh, on a consistent day and out basis and nothing matched this. And so, you know, then that gets to your next point. So that's kind of led me to this point and actually led me to make it a life journey of actually understanding how does nutrition not only impact, let's say diseases like type one diabetes, but that general health wellness and performance of individuals who are just healthy, non-diagnosed uh, with no pre-existing condition or those who have a disease state. And that's where I am now. But your question about, you know, what are the maybe paths or resistance that have been met along the way? Well, I, you know, what's interesting is my doctor was actually, my first doctor was the most open to it. And well, the, not, I wouldn't say, oh, how, how should I put this? He was, he saw my numbers, and there was no discussion about should you or shouldn't do it. I just went and did it on my own. Not to say I'm recommending this to anyone, but that's just what I did. And I show up with these amazing numbers, say, I feel great. What is he going to tell me? Not don't do that. Don't do it. Can't argue with success. Yeah. Can't argue with and, success. So yeah. exactly. And so I didn't really catch any resistance there. But anytime since then, what I've had, I've moved from where well, I was in Tallahassee to now Tampa and et cetera and beyond. Um, I have had different doctors and they all, mm -hmm. you know, raise their eyebrow. Well, what are you doing? What about these yeah. you know, risk and effects? And I'm like, yeah. and, and, and it's all met with a level of like, not, they're not adamant about what you sure shouldn't do because at the end of the day, there's objective biomarkers we know are assigned with risk of type one diabetes. That's right. And at the top of that list right now still remains HbA1c. And if someone walks in the door with an HbA1c that is usually never seen. They're not experiencing significant hypos on a regular basis. So you're not at acute risk for any major complications. Uh, what, what can someone really say to you other than, you know, don't do what's working for you? 
And so I, I've caught some level of resistance along the way, but nothing that would have stopped anyone from saying, stop doing something that objectively, based on the biomarkers we know matter for type one diabetes, you should stop. I will also add to that as I got into, I worked at USF Morsani College of Medicine, uh, worked in an incredible lab there, um, metabolic therapeutics lab, with some amazing, amazing, amazing people, learned quite a bit. It was a very productive period of time. I'm transitioning to Institute for Human and Machine Cognition uh, and have been there for a little bit now, uh, where we do some extension of things like this and well beyond, especially for the performance and resilience and health arm of things. Uh, but along that way, you know, I've met a lot of people on my journey to talk about fundamentally nutritional strategies for health, disease, yeah. and performance. And so having had those discussions, I've been lucky enough to be invited to a number of endocrinologist clinics who have either not heard of this approach or were interested enough and had definitely heard of it, but they had their skepticisms. And uh, right. I, I've grown to appreciate that there is certainly a level of apprehension out there and for good reason. You know, if you lower carbohydrates, there is an increase in fatty acid oxidation usually. Um, and it seems to be dose dependent. There seems to be this lower thresholding effect. Once you get low enough in insulin, you seem to have this objective elevation in fatty acid oxidation. And then linearly with that goes ketone production and ketogenesis. And ketoacidosis is a big concern in the world of type one diabetes. That's and right. when you go, right. And when you go on a diet that is lower in carbohydrates, it's a normal physiological response to elevate fatty acid oxidation and then subsequently ketone oxidation. So because of that, there's a lot of concern about, well, if I already have elevation risk as a type one diabetic for DKA, am I putting myself at elevated risk for ketoacidosis? And at the core of that is an important thing to bring up is what is the fundamental difference between physiological ketosis and ketoacidosis? or I should say nutritional ketosis as, as people like to define it versus DKA. Right. And the main differences is one is one you have in normal ketosis, you typically have normal, assume you don't have type one diabetes. Okay. So let's just distinguish these two factors. So a normal uh, nutritional ketosis, in order to facilitate that, you have to get carbohydrates low enough and it, and or potentially protein secondarily to get insulin low enough to increase fatty acid oxidation, your blood sugar typically stays between 70 to 120 milligrams per deciliter. Tone levels typically range between 0.5 and 3. There are some extreme studies in fasting where people got as high as 14, but that's a very extreme situation, but that's the right. highest I've ever seen. So we know the ranges are pretty wide uh, right. for people without adverse events reporting. Um, and insulin levels are typically low to, to moderate range. They're not zero. Now, to completely and directly compare that to DKA, in DKA, blood sugars are typically over 250 milligrams per deciliter. Insulin levels are absent or very, very low. So you're very deficient in insulin. And because of the absence in insulin, because of deficiency, and in this case, this is type 1 diabetes, um, your ketones are through the roof because insulin is the biggest player in regulating the production of ketones. Okay. Glucagon and insulin are both key players, but insulin really is the blockade for that. And if you remove the blockade completely, it can go and ketone production basically is unbridled. It can go as high as it wants. It needs yeah. to. Ketones actually aren't the problem in DKA in type 1 diabetes is the acid load that accompanies the ketones. Um, so that acid load is really what the concern is. 
ketoacidosis is really about the buffering capacity of bicarbonate in the blood. And if bicarbonate, as you see in DK, starts coming down. So that's another distinguishable factor between nutritional ketosis and uh, DKA yeah. is bicarbonate incrementally comes down with DKA because the buffering capacity is slowly precipitating or slowly lowering uh, such that it's no longer containing the ability to buffer the hydrogen load, which is the acid load. And so you're basically slowly changing your pH. That's really where the danger becomes, uh, enters into play. Because in theory, without that acid load, what would be the difference between glucose being super high and ketones being super high? They're probably not great to be super high for either of them, but one has an acid load that can change your pH and can change your physiological pH. That's when things get very, very dangerous. So there's a lot of apprehension revolving the diet um, in this regard. And there's a number of reasons for that. And we can go over that if you're interested. But uh, along my journey, it was really a personal journey from nutrition, just initially getting into exercise and lifestyle nutrition to then realizing the, the power it had in my disease and then wanting to study and understand that to a greater degree for how, what is its true potential or not potential application for other scenarios where people are burdened, not just with type one, but other diseases. And that led me to being a researcher uh, standing here today. So that's really my journey and kind of a little bit of discussion on the, the, the push back, the push forwards and backwards on this approach. Yeah, well, that's great. So have you noticed that your insulin requirements have gone down significantly with being on the keto diet? I mean, what, tell us a little bit about that or have you, I mean, I'm sure being a type one diabetic, you can never be completely not off of insulin, but that I'm talking about like just the requirements, maybe talk about that a little bit and what kind of go through on like usually where your blood sugars normally range during a maybe not on an everyday basis, but just say, for example, maybe yesterday. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. insulin, the first thing you brought up. So my insulin load, when I transitioned on the diet actually decreased about 70%. And that took some time. There was wow. an initial drop off. Yeah. So pretty robust. And by the way, Jessica, that's not totally uncommon. There's yeah. actually people who report that in the literature as well. Um, oh, yeah. and, and anecdotally, I've heard that also, but it's a pretty extreme number. I mean, we're talking, yeah. you know, one fourth of the original level. That's pretty insane. Amazing. I actually did a direct cost comparison of what, if I didn't have health insurance, what my insulin cost would have been per month compared to if I didn't have insurance post. And the comparison pre was about 900 per month and post was about 150 because the primary insulin that we use in type one diabetes to manage uh, blood sugar regulation uh, on a low carbohydrate approach that people find a lot of success for if they're not on a pump is that a lot of people like to use regular insulin because it matches really well the uh, glucose kinetics in the blood of protein. So that's actually $25 at Walmart. You know, insulin is another big issue. The cost of insulin and access to insulin is a huge, it, it has come to the forefront of society, whether you have type one diabetes or not because of pharmaceutical drug prices and beyond. And, and, and they've gone up recently. So that's amazing right. that. Yeah. So this is really help people that cannot afford insulin right now. And it's an, it's an option, right? So, yeah, and, and I always go exactly. into these, right. And I go into this a lot of times, and I must say that, look, to each their own, there isn't, I don't want to say that this is the only approach this is the only thing you can do. It's just something that a lot of people have found success with. And uh, the level and degree of success is something we can talk about based on what the literature says, because Andrew's an N of one, I'm an anecdote, right? And at this point, there's now hundreds and hundreds of anecdotes, but there's still anecdotes. Until you have a controlled study, it's really hard to know truly it, while controlling all factors, if it's really going to hold weight, doesn't mean it doesn't won't work for you. It just means 
how do we understand how it might apply to everyone else? And that's a lot of times that's where we use these controlled analysis studies to do that. But uh, back to this point on insulin, there have been about 40 studies uh, historically done on carbohydrate, low carbohydrate diets. Now I must define that. So the definitions revolving low carbohydrate have varied, but universally the literature says that low carbohydrate is it depends on how or what cat, uh, what uh, group or body is defining it. But if you use typical dietetic and nutritional uh, guidelines, it, it, low carbohydrate means lower than the average. Well, the average is around a greater than or equal to 45%. So if you're less than 45%, people will call that low carb or lower carbohydrate. Now, does that line up with what most people do? No, it does not at all. Um, but that's just lower than the average. Now, there's another range called moderate carbohydrate intake. And which is defined as this lower than 45 and above 25, because the cutoff at 25 represents the hypothetical brain needs of 130 grams that they used to believe is needed for the brain, which we now know is not true. So that 130 grams and or 25% used to be the threshold cutoff for what was recommended uh, for people to not go below because it was hypothetically believed that you need at least that for your brain fuel, which we of course know is absolutely not true. Now, uh, low carb, so this, this high carb above 45, moderate carb, which is 45 to 25, 25 to around 10% is this low carbohydrate range. And that's, you know, that's 130 to 50. Now that range is just, is just objectively, that's below the ideal range and below the very low and above the very low carbohydrate range. Now the very low carbohydrate range is defined at less than or equal to 50 grams per day. Now, We'll, we'll, I, so I have done some analysis across studies and we see that this is a linear relationship the, and it makes total sense. The carbohydrates are insulinogenic. So the more carbs you consume, the more insulin is acutely released postprandial. And we see that in the literature, the insulin requirements of patients on moderate, low to very low carbohydrate are precipitously lower. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really, I guess it should come as no surprise if that is the case. That's by absolute IUs and also insulin by body weight. Um, but yeah, so yes, insulin has definitely lowered quite a bit. And that's obviously a hot topic nowadays, but oh, yeah, uh, big yeah. time, big time, especially with drug prices going up yeah. recently. So yeah. unfortunate. So what about your sugar? Like, let's say when you're checking it, like what range do you typically get? And what was right. your you don't mind sharing with us what was your recent a1c hemoglobin yes so yeah so my most so we'll go one to the next so the blood sugar uh range so i typically shoot for 70 to 120. Mm -hmm. really my ideal range is to be somewhere between 90 and 100. um okay. that gives enough room for some level of mistakes or variability because at the end of the day as much sure. as we can hope to be perfect life isn't perfect in fact yeah. i can attest to the fact that my blood sugar on a regular basis is it, it is so much better, but there are days where I take too much insulin because I, I had a change in insulin sensitivity. So I just got the second dose of the Moderna vaccine and my insulin went up, but you know, went up, like, I would say not double, but like 50% more. Right. So you yeah, have your, these... yeah, your body's mounting that immune response. And so stress on your body. So you're going to need more. So that makes sense. Right. And it's a well-defined effect, like the inflammatory load that goes up acutely, mm -hmm. which is the expected response. Yeah. Um, facilitate some level of uh, insulin resistance or glucose uh, efflux into the bloodstream, 
or influx in the bloodstream, but efflux from like tissues like the hepatic tissue, uh, the liver. And so that's totally to be expected, but that's sure. things you have to account for on a regular basis, right? Yeah. So uh, things change on a regular basis and you have to account for all these changing variables. I go walk outside, I get 20 minutes of walking outside and I'm, I'm in the sun, I'm gonna have a change in insulin sensitivity. If I inject it into my uh, fat or out of the shoulder and I go move and be active, that absorption rate changes. So every day there's a nuanced aspect that gets into insulin variability that requires some little control. The beauty about what people have experienced, and myself included with very low carbohydrate, is the variability in blood sugar goes down dramatically. And that's really what allows for someone to control their blood sugar. Mm -hmm. So if you keep in mind when someone has type 1 diabetes, the reason the mean level of blood sugar, so the average HbA1c in type 1 diabetes is around 8. That's about 183 milligrams per deciliter if we directly try to translate the estimates of blood sugar level to mean blood sure. sugar. Sure. That's a lot higher than normal, right? 80 to 120 is normal. 180 is, you know, twofold higher than that, depending on what number you choose between 80 and 120. And with that very, or with that elevation and that higher level, why would someone keep it at 180? Why not keep it at 100? Well, the problem is that the variance around the, these insulins and, the, and typically the typical dietary pattern mm -hmm. causes great fluctuations in patients. And these fluctuations are cited in the literature to be anywhere between 60 and 100 milligrams per deciliter above the mean and below the mean. Meaning mm -hmm. that if you lower your mean blood sugar and your variance, let's say it's 183, say you have the exact average blood sugar of the type 1 diabetic community. Let's say that your variance is 100. That means that you can go as low as 83 and as high as 283. Mm -hmm. 83 is right above the cutoff for normal glycemia and really close to 70. I could inject one unit one day and it cause a reduction in insulin in 50 milligrams per deciliter. I can inject one unit the next day and it can cause a 100 milligrams per deciliter difference. So imagine that you're dealing with units of insulin on a regular basis and you make a slight mistake and you push your mean too low, you're gonna be dealing with a lot of acute complications of hypoglycemia risk on a regular basis. So people typically keep their mean to avoid hypoglycemia based around the variance level around their mean. So their mean here and their variance here. But if you can lower that variance, you can then lower your mean. So really what I think is the safest approach for those with type 1 IBs who ever wanna explore this, I'm not giving any clinical guidance, but just as a, even for physicians who are, trying to sure. guide patients on their approach. It's right. about trying to, uh, I, one of the successful strategies is say someone doesn't want to go true very low carbohydrate, which is by the way, historically where we've seen the best results in the literature. Less than 50 grams per day is where people tend to have the best success and where we've actually seen the most amount of normal glycemic reported outcomes if any therapy in type 1 diabetes. 50 total grams of car, 50 total, right? Not net. Correct. Okay. Correct. Not net, total grams of carbohydrate. Okay. Um, and typically the lower you go, the better you get. And we do see the linear relationship. So, um, now it will say someone doesn't want to do that, but getting lower might be helpful, right? So just lowering it uh, a little bit more might be helpful. So the way I like to describe it to people or even physicians who are interested in helping guide their patients who might anticipate resistance to someone having this massive change in diet, walking to the grocery store and knowing that the 60% of the, the, the grocery store, you're not going to eat probably the center of the grocery store. Um, you're going to have to walk away from those things. Usually that, that type of robust lifestyle change is very hard to go all at once for most people. So what I like to say is if you're attempting to go on this journey, lower it to the point where you, and this is something you want to do. So to each their own, but mm -hmm. 
But if it's something you want to do and you want to go on this journey, lower it to the point where you're able to have control. And whatever that level ends up being, excellent. But the goal for me is never about achieving a ketone level or having a certain gram of anything. It's about getting normal blood sugars because yeah. that's what matters to my health and well-being on a regular basis. Not even for me, but my family on a regular basis. With sure. them not having the variance and the fluctuations and all these other variables that puts me at risk, I feel better. I'm a better dad. I'm a better husband. I'm a better researcher. Right. And uh -huh. I don't have that risk every single yeah. night of going to bed and thinking, wow, I hope he wakes up. Right. Because unfortunately, that's really where the major risk factor is. Someone with type 1 diabetes, just like my diagnosis today, is expected to live about a decade, if not two decades shorter than someone else without this diagnosis. That, in my opinion, is utterly unacceptable. But one of the biggest right. reasons for that is because of these acute deaths that occur because of, you know, uh, what they, unfortunately it's called dead in bed syndrome, uh, which is someone over boluses, they might have chose the wrong dose and they don't wake up. Uh, because they went hypo. It happens. It's not like super common or anything, but it does happen. And this is what people, mo most people try to avoid by keeping their blood sugars higher. But we know that the variation is the biggest factor in this. HbA1c, the higher it goes, the more likely you are to have these types of symptoms. So better control of your blood sugars, better HbA1c's dramatically lowers a lot of these complications. In fact, a lot of the hypothetical risks ascribed to what people are afraid about uh, low carbohydrate diet are actually lowered. Uh, based on the literature in these approaches. Uh, granted, a lot of it's preliminary evidence, not like super robust RCT long-term data, but we still, we have to go off what we know right now because patients have this disease. Millions of people have type one diabetes and they're living every day with this disease and the burden that comes along with it. They have family members, they have a lifestyle they need to live and they wanna live the highest quality of life. For those people who wanna improve their life, there's an option on the table. And honestly, that's why I'm talking with you here today, Jessica, just so, Andrew Kutnick, who was diagnosed, didn't have to find it on his own, that someone else can maybe happen to come across this and they can go on this journey um, and maybe at least know that it's an option. You don't have to do it, but right. know that it's an option. Um, so the next thing, most recent HbA1c, 5.5. So I've had wow. as low as 4.9 and, uh, and I've kept almost my entire type 1 diabetic life below six the entire time. Uh, a lot of that has varied. Uh, I've, the only time I've been above that is initially upon diagnosis, and I've been one time out of that. Uh, and I was doing a diet strategy that wouldn't recommend for anyone, but I was trying a, a uh, very flexible diet approach where I was trying different foods and they had very little consistency in my lifestyle at that stage. And I, my blood sugar went to seven very acutely. And I was, uh, in fact, my wife sat me down and said, you know, are you going to keep trying this diet? Because I was trying it for exercise related uh, objective. And I'm like, I started to feel that my cognition was lowering, like, like in real time, I was very regularly experiencing blood sugars above 220 uh, and below 80. I mean, it would, I was, I was feeling like my brain was becoming kind of a pile of mush. And it really gave me some appreciation for what a lot of people may be experiencing on a regular basis with type 1 diabetes. And that really yeah. has empowered me to really get out there and at least say, look, guys, you don't have to do this, but just know yeah. there's something available if you feel like you want a, a path to getting to these like idealistic, uh, like normal glycemia. You know, you don't need normal glycemia uh, to live your life, but it may help your life if you choose to want that. And so it makes it's a total game changer for, for me and many other patients with type 1 diabetes. You know, there's a lot of questions that do need to be answered. Uh, scientifically speaking with type one diabetes, but at least we know at this point that there's enough 
pieces of evidence to say that this certainly is possible. I'm certainly living the evidence of that. And I know hundreds of patients who are as well. So it's something that I'm encouraged to share with other people, but I also will illustrate like, you know, unfortunately we don't have the level of studies that type two diabetes has, you know, type two almost has up to a hundred low carbohydrate studies to date. Um, in type I know one, it. Yeah. And without hesitation, you can usually recommend the keto diet for type two diabetics because they, you know, they have somewhat of an insulin production, but with someone like you, like type one diabetics, it's like, Oh, okay. That's when it kind of gets a little complicated, but it's just so great to hear that working so well for you. And, and I've seen it work well with a few patients in my practice too. And, um, I have a few type one diabetics that are doing keto and are doing well. So I, I really believe it's, it's, it's such a great a great So do you tell me, do you check your ketones on a regular basis? Like your, you do do like a blood ketone testing or do you um, tell me a little bit about that? I mean, I know obviously you're checking your sugar three, four times a day, but what about ketones? Yeah. So ketones, it's interesting because that's literally, you know, directly what I studied is, is uh, low carbohydrate indoor direct ketone metabolism, which is a huge part of our focus as a metabolic lab. Um, so obviously I, I, as someone who's kind of always played around with my own understanding of how I respond to things, I naturally, uh, uh, played around a lot with that. And so my goal is to never have high ketone levels, but have I checked them all the time? Uh, oh, sorry, let me back up. I used to check them all the time. Yeah. I don't, for practical purposes, I'll say this up front. I never went on this approach to check ketone levels. I'll say that. I think I said that earlier, but I'll say it again. I never did it for that. I did it for blood sugar regulation. But I have checked uh, ketone levels. I actually typically sit around 0.5 on a regular basis. So gotcha. um, it's not really, it's, it's actually pretty difficult for me to get above one. Usually I only get to one if I do like some type of, you know, low intensity, long duration exercise, just going out for a long bike ride. Mm-hmm. So my wife recently ran a half marathon oh, and nice. me and my son were, you know, bike riding support, right? So she, my son's in the chariot behind me. And I'm riding the bike. And so I'm, you know, because we're on this trail and it's virtual because of COVID. And so I'm, you know, we're giving water, you know, as she needs it. And so I was out there for, you know, a few hours. We went out a little early. We went around and stuff. And then we were out and around before that. So I've, I've done, you know, multi-hour rides before. And I'll see like one after that, um, but nothing crazy. And that's usually the case, but it very much depends. What we have seen is that ketone levels on a ketogenic diet definitely seems to depend on a number of factors. How active are you? The more active people tend to not really get yes. as high. Body weight also seems to be a big factor, more so the muscle mass of the individual. So mm-hmm. the higher the muscle mass, they tend to have lower ketone levels. Men tend to have lower than ketone levels than women from what I've seen. But that I, I, that's, I would say that that's not rock solid mountains of evidence to say that. Uh, and, you know, I guess the degree of restriction on carbohydrates primarily, but also protein as well. So people who also tend to restrict protein to lower levels would tend to get a little higher. That, at least that's what's seen. That's keep that with a grain of salt. A lot, some of that is just based on what we've seen a lot uh, with research studies and anecdotally. So keep that uh, in mind. But so I typically sit around 0.5 to one. I did check it. I have played around with exogenous ketone bodies. I have played around with uh, a whole bunch of different approaches. But uh, it, you know, if we center this to type one and low carbohydrate, it was never really it isn't the focus for me. Although you know, it is important to keep in mind that ketone levels do matter. You don't want them to get absorbently high because truly in type one diabetes, there is that mm-hmm. fine line of understanding, okay, am I nutritional ketosis or I'm pushing the limits of DKA? And you can usually feel confident your blood sugar is normal. 
uh, new ketone levels are reasonable and normal levels are 0.5 to 5. Uh, typically, we have seen way higher than that in literature, but usually in more extreme fasted chronic fasting studies. So not necessarily type one with food. So I kind of give a little bit more of a uh, nuanced uh, response to that. But yes, I do check them. I have played around with it a bit. But for me personally, I tend to not be above 0.5 ever. I usually sit at that when I wake up post meal and I only get to anything above one whenever I do any type of kind of like a multi-hour endurance exercise. Um, or if you probably, if you reduce your carbohydrate intake, if you cut down on what you probably, what you normally do is probably, probably the normal amount of carbs that you do, you'd probably get to a higher ketone level. I'd yeah, imagine. you would. And, yeah. but I also say that, you know, that one time I got to one that I'm referring to there, I actually, what I was doing is I, so I'm keeping my protein the same and yeah. I was actually woke up and immediately went and exercised. So uh, I didn't eat anything that whole entire time. So I actually didn't have any carbohydrates in theory in my, my ah. ingested. So that's, it's also contributing by the way, to how I got to one, yeah. but you know, the exercise seemed to be the controlling factor there. Cause I was 0.5 when I first woke up, I was one when I was done with all that. So those do matter. I tend to find that most people who sit at that level or don't even get to that level who are on low carbohydrate, it's usually because they've already addressed the carbohydrates and getting it low enough. Usually they tend to have very high protein levels. So a lot of people approach low carbohydrate for weight loss. And yeah. so, and they also, yeah, what's that? Yeah. The majority of people do. Right. Right. And so for those folks, you know, protein is a very important mm -hmm. macronutrient for muscle and body composition. So uh, I'm not, I'm definitely not the person you're going to hear promoting low protein diets by any means, uh, <laughs> especially for those folks who want to have, you know, improve their strength, body composition, et cetera. Because uh, there's a ton of evidence to benefits of that. Uh, but what I will say is that, you know, it does require insulin. Uh, about, you know, there's some literature that says about 40% of the amount of insulin that glucose does per gram. But, you know, I'm sure there's different values depending on what study you looked at. But it's a lot less. It's not, the, the peak is certainly not as high. And the area under the curve is, is much less. And the, the glucose-induced effect of protein is more prolonged. So there's all that combined, but you still require some protein. And the problem that I think is worth considering with type 1 diabetes, which changes metabolism, comparatively to the normal population, I always view type 1 diabetes as a very special situation for researching metabolism. Mm -hmm. You are, I am a knockout for insulin, knockout model of insulin in the human uh, setting. And I get to play around with the amount of insulin I give on a regular basis. And I also see all the factors in life that can change insulin requirements acutely and chronically. And that has been an insane asset uh, for me as a person studying metabolism on a regular basis. Cause what I've learned from type one diabetes is or is more important at times than what I've read in a textbook. Mm -hmm. And uh, without the textbook, I would never understand any of this. But with the textbook, this has provided a level of understanding that is just oh, yeah. fascinating. Um, and I truly love it. I don't honestly know if a cure was offered right now today, which right now today would be offered with a host of caveats and we don't have them. But if it ever did come available, I don't know, it'd be, it wouldn't be an immediate yes. I can tell you that much because it's been a true asset to me more so than it's ever been a burden to my life. So, so yeah. Okay, great. Well, it looks like we're kind of near and close to time here. Let me just ask you one more question. So tell us what publications you have and where we can find more information about 
type one diabetes and the keto diet? Yeah. So uh, publications. So about, I think it's 2018, 17, somewhere around there. I was in, not invited. I, I was selected as one of five people to do a TED talk uh, for the, the whole network of University of South Florida. And I did a TED talk on this approach. And from that, I was always, honestly, I'll just be very honest here. I was very afraid that people were going to view that and say, oh, this guy is like all low carb. Like this guy is just like low carb Andrew. And I was like, you know, I, I was definitely afraid of that because to yeah. me, it isn't about a diet. It is about finding out what works. And this just happens to be a solution that supersedes any current or exploratory therapies for type one diabetes right now. It is the most effective based on the evidence. So in order to fully explain that in 15 minute TED talk, there isn't enough time to give you enough convincing evidence for the most skeptical of scientists or clinician that that is, uh, that they're convinced. So I spent the time after that to write an 80 page blog with 200, over 200 references to fully define why mm -hmm. I said what I said. It's freely available for anyone to see. I largely did it because I don't want you to necessarily take even what I said today, what I said on a prior video ever, ever just at face value and say, oh, Andrew said it, that must be true. I actually hope that people go and look for that evidence and look into it for themselves and make their own conclusion. And that's, that's how I think it should be. So it's freely available. It's just my name because I couldn't think of anything creative. So I just hit andrewkutnick.com. <laughs> um, so that's where it is. That's uh, fine. And, so uh, it's it's publicly available there. All the publications I've been involved in, um, right. uh, I think I put them on. I try to keep it updated, but I'm not very good at that. I try to keep them all available there. You don't have to go to PubMed and type in K-O-U-T-N-I-K space A-P and just do a word search. Um, but there's a one recent publication we did specifically touching on a lot of what we spoke about here today. Um, and that was with Belinda Leonards and David Lovewood and Joseph Wolfster uh, and their team, Svetlana as well, uh, who works with them, uh, about low carbohydrate and a historical reference to what is the history of carbohydrate restriction and type 1 diabetes, what are the definitions, and just a, a, a kind of a mini preemptive review uh, of what does the literature say on that. Um, and also addressing some of the things people have brought up as concerns and, and what does the literature actually say about that? So we couldn't say everything we wanted to say in that. Of course, we had to keep it within the word limit, um, but that's, on, that's a journal of clinical investigation, uh, actually for the 100th year anniversary of insulin, the, the one drug that allows me to stand here today uh, and live as close to a normal life as human possible. It's definitely the greatest discovery for, uh, for diabetes. Oh, absolutely. Day. Yeah. So I'm grateful for that for sure, but I, I'm here talking today to see what else we can do for those living with disease to get beyond that. So uh, yeah. it's, it's a great thing because it'll definitely prolong the life expect expectancy for type one diabetics and, uh, you know, and also prevent the complications that are associated that I see so often. So I, it, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say that just, I'll, I'll touch on that real quick that one of the biggest things for me, when I think about this approach is, you know, I, there's been a lot of hope for a cure. And trust me, I'm standing here today huh? hoping for that. Oh, uh, I know. But I'm also spoke to many of the world's best beta cell biologists and they remain very skeptical that's coming anytime soon. Uh, and if I'm lucky, even in my lifetime. And so I don't put a lot in that. I don't try to put unnecessary hope into that either. I do sure. fundamentally hope for it, but I'm trying to advocate and find solutions for those living today with this situation and approve that today. Because as you, you mentioned, type one diabetics are set up to live about a decade to two decades shorter 
on average right now, they're set up for increased risk for all town leading causes of death. And fundamentally, this comes down to glycemic control. Now, glycemic control is not the only factor that matters here. Not, not at all. I'm not trying to say that. But the one fundamental difference that happens upon diagnosis is that you no longer have the production of insulin and you lose glycemic control. And all of those risk factors are tied back to glycemic mismanagement. So right. if we can improve that, we can only hope to not only at least improve the acute situation of living day in and day out, but we might hold the possibility of really attenuating the long-term complications that have come with this disease. Uh, so I'm very hopeful uh, for those living today because yeah. uh, we also know that rapid insulins, at least to the stage, do not predictably or reliably match carbohydrate production uh, or carbohydrate-induced glucose kinetics in the blood. So we're really sitting here with very few other options, and this presents one. So I hope to get it out there to as many people as possible who are looking for solutions in their lifestyle to improve their health, whether for themselves or for the betterment of those around them. Uh, so that's why I stay in here. Yeah, it's great. This is great information. So thank you so much, Andrew, for all this wonderful information. And um, if you guys want to find him, just go to his blog, which is andrewkutnick.com, right? That's, that's, yep, that right? that's Okay, correct. awesome. All right. So, all right. Well, I think that wraps it up for today. Thanks so much um, for this great learning session. <laughs> and um, hope to do more work with you in the future. So Excellent, Jessica. I truly appreciate it. And good luck with everything you're trying to do to get information out there for people. Yep. That's, that's what I'm going to keep doing. So, all right. Good luck to you. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye. This has been the Holistic Keto Goddess podcast with Jessica Ankaya. Follow the Holistic Keto Goddess on social media like Pinterest, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have any questions about today's show or how you can live a healthier life, visit holisticketogoddess.com and go more in depth with blogs and healthy living resources. Like, share, subscribe, and listen wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Holistic Keto Goddess Podcast with Jessica Ankaya.